a Charlie Brown Christmas. Charlie Brown is having trouble getting into the Christmas spirit. You guys remember this, right? That there's a struggle the whole time in Charlie Brown Christmas where he's having trouble getting into the Christmas spirit. And so it kind of culminates in Linus coming to Charlie Brown and he says, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. (laughs) And unfortunately, some Christians seem to have that same problem at Christmas. Charlie Brown was an example for some people when we should be lifting up and exalting Jesus and yet we make it a sad time or a problem. And listen, we've mentioned over the last couple weeks, Derek has talked about, we've talked about on our podcast that Christmas and, and the holidays can often be a difficult and even sad time for some people. And Due to circumstances surrounding the year, or this time of year, you may have difficulties. And I don't want to in any way minimize that. I understand that there is difficulty that comes for some this time of year. But I do want to show you that even in the face of hurt, difficulty, and pain, or even in the face of fun, delight, and joy we can have a source of joy that is greater than anything else. But before we start, before we go any further, I want to make sure that we understand what we mean when we say joy. It's a word that's thrown around a lot this time of year, right? Say joy to the world. We just sang joy to the world. We sang it earlier. We talked about that it's the Sunday of joy for Advent. But we need to make sure that we're all on the same page here when we're talking about joy. The dictionary defines joy as a feeling of great pleasure or happiness. And a lot of Christians sometimes will scoff at this definition as if God never intended for us to be happy or enjoy life. But quite the contrary is true. God meant for us to enjoy things and to be happy about things. I mean, just think about for a second, think about how good peanut butter tastes, right? Peanut butter is delightful. It makes me happy. Give me a spoon and a jar of Jif, and I'm a happy man, right? I have joy. God provided peanuts to make peanut butter, so he wanted us to be joyful, right? However, there's more to it than that. It's not just this makes me very happy. There's a deeper happiness. The biblical definition of joy says that joy is a feeling of good pleasure and happiness that is dependent on who Jesus is rather than on who we are and what is happening around us. So you see the difference there? That in the Bible, that happiness and that good pleasure comes from something outside of us. It comes only and ultimately through Christ. Joy comes from Christ abiding in us and God's presence being with us and from hope in his word. Do you see the difference? There's a difference between just being happy, because peanut butter makes me happy, and some of you it does as well, obviously. And there's other things. You could fill in that blank with lots of things that make us happy that we enjoy. But the biblical definition of joy is a deeper happiness. It's a fuller joy than we get from things like peanut butter. It's a happiness and pleasure that isn't dependent on how something tastes or how we feel or what we are experiencing in front of us. And today, I want us to see that we find this kind of joy only in Christ. And it is really displayed for us in the covenant that God makes with Abraham. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. 
Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to be uh, today to begin. And, and let's see what we can learn about joy there. Now, remember, um, we've been talking about how these elements of Advent are um, visible to us in the covenants that God made with his people. We talked about the covenant of creation. Last week, we talked about the covenant uh, with Noah. And today, we're going to talk about the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis here. So the first thing that we see, our first point, is that God brings blessings through new beginnings. God brings blessing through new beginnings. If we were to take the time to go back, we don't have time to do this this morning, but if we were to take the time to go back and read through Genesis chapters 10 and 11, we would see the account of the Tower of Babel where humanity tries to build a tower and make a name for itself by building this tower to heaven. And God thwarts this by dispersing the people throughout all the earth and creating many languages so that they can't understand each other. And so at the beginning of Genesis 12, we see God make a new beginning. And this is the last time that we'll see a new beginning in the book until we get, in the Bible until we get to Revelation. That we had the new beginning at creation initially in Genesis 1. We had where God had a new beginning with Noah. He kind of starts over. And now we'll see here that there's this, again, another start over after the Tower of Babel. So... He chooses a new man and his family to be his chosen people through which he's going to bless the earth. God makes promises to this man named Abram that he will bless the whole earth through him. You know, I read this week, there's a theologian whose name is N.T. Wright. You may have heard of him before. He's an English man, but um, he, he wrote this. He said, we could sum up this part of Genesis by saying, Abraham's children are God's true humanity, and their homeland is the new Eden. So let's look at what it says here in Genesis chapter 12. I'm just going to read the first three verses. This is God talking to Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God makes promises here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that begin to undo the curses that God doled out back in Genesis 3. You remember at the fall, God pronounces a couple of curses, uh, to one over humanity, one over the ground, one over um, the, the tempter, the, the serpent there. And so God begins to undo these curses through Abraham. These blessings that we find here in these verses are wrapped up in a relationship between God and Abram. And God is making some incredible promises. William Dumble writes, In Genesis 12, 2, God blesses Abram. And here the notion of blessing is bound up with nationhood and fame. Look at what he says there in verse 2. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So he promises nationhood and fame. And as a result, Abram is then to be, embodied, to be the embodiment of blessing, the example of what blessing should be. God will bless those who rightly recognize the source of Abram's blessing. And then finally, Abram becomes the mediator of blessing. He's the one who doles out blessing to creation. And this is still true of us today as Abraham's descendants. Remember, um, we used to sing the song when we were kids. Remember, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. 
So let's all praise the Lord, right? We used to sing that song together. Right arm, Father Abraham, right? We, we used to do that when we were kids. We're all descendants of Abraham, and God blesses us that we might be a blessing to others. We are his representatives to bless the world. And here's how this plays out. Now, everyone's heard the old adage that it's better to give than to receive, right? You've heard that before. But don't we know that to be true? If you've lived for any amount of time out of your teens, really, you know the truth of that, that it's better to give than to receive. I mean, I, 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 um, I love giving gifts to my kids. I, I cannot tell you the joy that wells up in me on Christmas morning, even, actually even before Christmas morning, because I know what's wrapped up in those gifts under the tree. And, and I love to give things to my kids. To bless them with something that they love and they're excited about brings me joy. It brings me great pleasure. And God blesses humanity on a much higher level. When God blesses us, it transforms us. Now, of course, I would love to think that I can give a life-changing gift to my kids, right? But let's be honest, a new toy or some other thing is not going to change the life of my child, probably. I don't come anywhere close to blessing my children in the way that God blesses us. God's blessings are a manifestation of his faithfulness to us. It shows us that God loves us when he blesses us. And this should begin to stir up joy in our hearts as we think about what God does in us and through us. Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam are some guys who wrote a book that has kind of guided Derek and myself as we've thought through this, um, this series. But they, they said this, Abram and the nation that comes from him constitutes an Adam figure. God intends to establish his rule over all of creation through his relationship with Abram and his family. Through blessing Abram and his descendants, the broken relationship between God and all the nations of the world will, be, will begin to be reconciled and healed. So God promises blessings to Abram that will begin to heal the rift between God and humanity. It's a new beginning. God brings blessing through new beginnings. But, as we will soon see, God takes things further than Abram ever could have imagined. Throughout the rest of Genesis 12, if we were to keep... Going, we would see that Abram follows in obedience. God tells him to get up and go to this country with, with your kindred, the, the, to the place that I show you, and, and he does that. He follows in obedience. Him and his wife and, and several other family members, they leave and they go to this land that God has told them they've never been to before. And um, through that, um, if we were to read in, in chapters 13 and 14, we see that um, Abram's nephew named Lot, he goes with them and they decide to separate and go in different ways because they have this little disagreement. And so Lot goes and he settles in the land near Sodom. And it's the same Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah that, that you know that story if you have any history in church. And um, at one point, Abram has to go and rescue his nephew. Um, that Lot has been attacked by some evil men. In fact, it's the men who control the city of Sodom. And uh, during that rescue, Abram comes in. God uses him and they overcome the king. But he takes nothing for himself. He does not take any spoils of battle, which is very unusual when you think about the culture of the day. Because typically it was... Um, uh, one group would come in and conquer the other group, and they would take all the spoils of war with them, that they got all the stuff that was in that city. But Abram takes nothing for himself. 
As the victor in battle, um, he had every right to do that, but he doesn't do this. He even tells the king of Sodom, he says, I I don't want anything from you so that you won't have the ability to say, oh yeah, you know, Abram, he got ahead because I I gave him all that stuff. He says, no. Abram says, no, I'm going to, God will bless me and God alone. God's the one who's going to bless me. I will leave it up to him. And that brings us to Genesis 15, where we find this beautiful scene between God and Abram, where God cuts a covenant with Abram, and we see our second point. The second thing we see this morning is that God's promises are not dependent on humanity. God's promises are not dependent on humanity. Now, I want us to read the whole chapter of Genesis 15 because it's such a beautiful scene, and we won't really grasp what's happening here if we don't read it in its entirety. So follow along with me, beginning in Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, so it's after, after that little battle has happened and Abram's been victorious and, and didn't take anything. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, God said to Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, and he cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All the ites, all their land is going to be given to Abraham, right? So what we have here is this beautiful, beautiful scene that I hope I'm able to show you what's going on here. So God comes to Abram to inform him that because he had acted the way he did with the king of Sodom, that he's going to reward him. And if we're being honest, Abram's response is pretty bold. His attitude basically amounts to God saying, hey, your reward's going to be great. I appreciate the way that you acted with the king of Sodom. And Abraham says, yeah, God, I've heard you say something like this before. And I have yet to see any of the blessings that we talked about years ago. 
right? Remember, this is years later now, and God has already promised back in Genesis 12 that I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the world through you. And Abram says, how can I even know that what you're saying is true? You promised to make me into a great nation, and there hasn't even been one baby born yet. And I think we probably can understand Abram's frustration. I mean, God had spoken to Abram years before, and yet Abram's not seen any evidence of the promises that God made to him yet, right? Not seen any evidence of it. So God directs Abram to prepare for a ceremony that's going to solidify the promises that he made years before. And we need to examine this covenant ceremony in order to understand the gravity of the situation here. So God directs Abram to collect all of these animals and to cut them in half and lay the halves on the ground apart from each other. If you'll you'll remember, Derek mentioned before that this was not really an uncommon practice in the ancient Near Eastern culture, that it was known as cutting a covenant because you literally cut these animals in half and then both parties would walk through the middle. It's basically involving an oath where both parties are calling a curse of death on themselves if they're not faithful to the covenant relationship that's being made. But in this incredible scene, there's a very distinct difference from a normal covenant ceremony. God causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam, I mean, I'm sorry, on Abram, and while he's asleep, God walks through the cut animals by himself. This is incredible. Don't miss this. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. The fact that only God walks through the animal pieces shows that the promises depend on him and on him alone. The promises that God made to Abram in Genesis 12 are dependent on God and God alone. I want to read, um, I read this book earlier this week, and, and there's this guy named Ray Vanderlaan, and he, he says this much better than, than I ever could when he writes. He says this, think of it, almighty God walking barefoot through a pool of blood. I love you so much, Abram, God was saying, and I promise that this covenant will come true for you and your children. I will never break my covenant with you. I'm willing to put my own life on the line to make you understand. God was making a promise to all the descendants of Abraham, to everyone in the household of faith. When God splashed through the blood, he did it for us, for you and for me. We're not simply individuals who have our own relationships to God. We're part of a long line of people marching back through history. When God made his covenant with his people, he did something no human being would ever consider doing. He promised to keep both sides of the agreement. How incredible that we have a God who promises and is in relationship with us, and it is not dependent on us. God made these promises and entered into covenant with his people, but there is nothing that Abram or any follower of God, nothing that you can do, nothing that I can do to negate or break the covenant. God's promises are not dependent on humanity. And this covenant that God makes here in Genesis 15 becomes the basis for every interaction that God has with humanity from this point on in Scripture. This blessing, these blessings that God promises to Abram and to all of his descendants becomes the basis for how God works through the rest of Scripture. And this is where we're really going to see the true joy of Christmas. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. In the Gospel of Luke, 
we're going to see a couple of things here, a couple of uh, instances where God works in an incredible way. And we're going to see our final point. Our final point is that God provides joy by remembering his covenant and showing us Hesed. Remember, Hesed is that kindness of God shown in loyal love that Derek talked about last week. It's a Hebrew word, Hesed. And um, we, we talked about that in length last week and talked about how it is God's kindness that is shown to us in loyal, faithful love. Let's look first at Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. There we find what is called the Magnificat. The Magnificat is where Mary sings this song. She has left from Nazareth, and she is um, visiting her cousin Elizabeth, who is also pregnant. Um, and uh, at the, um, Elizabeth uh, tells her that when she first heard her voice, that the baby inside of her leaps for joy. Uh, and then Mary breaks out into this song. So look at what she says here uh, in Luke 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and, his holy, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. For he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. There in verse 54, right there at the end, what, um, what does it say that God remembers? What does God remember? This is the audience participation portion. What does it say? Mercy. It says that God remembers his mercy. The Greek word that's translated mercy there is the Greek version of the Hebrew word hesed. It's that loving kindness that's shown in loyal love by God fulfilling the promises that he made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15. And Mary realizes it. The Holy Spirit opens her eyes to see that this is what God's doing. He's fulfilling those promises that he made hundreds of years ago. And Mary cannot contain her joy. She bursts forth in this song of worship. But before you say, well, yeah, I mean, she's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Of course she's joyful, right? Th think about the chaos that's going on in Mary's life at this moment. She's a young teenager who has suddenly found herself pregnant, and she knows she hasn't been with a man. The town where she grew up is in such a frenzy with the news that she is pregnant that she has to leave and go spend several months with her cousin who lived over a hundred miles away. It was over a hundred miles from Nazareth to where Elizabeth lived. She has a fiance who's trying to figure out what to do because he knows that baby's not his. Her world is spinning out of control and yet she's joyful. And I think that some of us in this room could probably identify that the world may seem like it's spinning out of control, and yet we can be joyful. That's Mary's situation. But there's another situation here that we need to look at. 
Think about the situation of Zechariah. Mary's cousin's husband, so Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, he's the father of John the Baptist, and an angel had appeared to him when he was serving at the temple and said, your wife, who is elderly, is going to give birth to a son. And Zechariah questions it and says, how, how, there's no way that can happen. How can that happen? And he's struck speechless. He cannot speak. He's lost his ability to talk. And yet here, um, right after the Magnificat there, if we were to keep reading, the birth of John the Baptist happens and uh, they want to, you know, the, John still can't talk, but the baby's been born and they're now wanting to name him. They're like, oh, let's, let's name him Zechariah after his daddy. And um, that would be great, right? And the first thing that Zechariah is able to say is no. <laughs> no is the first word that comes out of his mouth after you know, nine months of not being able to speak. He says, no, his name's going to be called John because that's what the angel told me his name would be. And look at what he says. Look at this account here that Zechariah <clears throat> says his name's going to be John and then he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Here, after the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah regains his ability to speak. And what's the first thing he talks about in verse 72 there? What word do we see there again in verse 72? Mercy. Mercy. It's again the exact same word. Hesed. God is fulfilling his promises that he made to Abraham right here in the lives of these people. And they realize it and joy is the product. They burst forth in song. When was the last time that you burst forth in song? I mean, in my mind, obviously, I, I have a very cinematic view there. I think of like a Disney princess just busting into song in the middle of the forest or something, right? It, it, that, that's, I mean, that's similar to kind of the story here. It's, I mean, imagine Elizabeth, she's sitting there talking to Mary, and he's like, she's like, you know, the baby just leaped to me when I heard your voice. My soul magnifies the Lord, right? That's what Mary busts out into song. And, and it, it's, it's kind of a funny situation, but it's a perfect example of what joy is like for us, what it should be like for us, that we cannot contain ourselves, right? God is at work and doing incredible things, and we cannot help ourselves but worship Him. As God remembers His covenant with humanity and shows His faithful loving kindness, the product is always joy. We see it all throughout Scripture. This is just two very small instances of joy overflowing from people as they see God showing His hesed, His loving kindness to humanity. So, how do we respond? What do we do with this? Well, I, I think it requires a shift in our perspective. I am not advocating that we should live our lives aloof to what's going on around us. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I know life's hard. Life's hard for me just like it's hard for you. 
I know we face situations that seem insurmountable. I know that there is real hurt and real sadness that some of us deal with this time of year and throughout the rest of the year. But I also know that there's something more that we can grab hold of as well. You and I, as humans, we are very visual creatures. And what I mean by that is that it's easy for us to become consumed by what's right in front of our eyes. You get so focused on what's right in front of you that you lose sight of everything else that's going on around you because it's what we see at the moment. And those things can be difficult. However, if we could shift our perspective from right here to just right up here, if we could shift our perspective away from what's right in front of our face and see the God of creation who promises loving kindness to us day in and day out, then we could say, as Paul says in Romans 8.18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that has been revealed to us. The joy that we all so desperately seek is available today. It's here, now. We can grab it. God offers it to us freely through Jesus Christ, His Son. Be reminded today of God's promises to you in Christ and of the incredible loving kindness that He shows us. And may we burst forth in joyful worship. You know, maybe today is a day that you need to say, God, I need my perspective to shift. I need to change from here to here. Get my eyes on you. Maybe you need to come down here to this altar. This is a place where you can come and pray and ask God to help you change your perspective. Maybe you want someone to pray with you. You can do that. Um, I, I know this is kind of spur of the moment, but can I get some connect group leaders or some of our deacons to come down here and be available to pray with people if they need it? Uh, I'd appreciate that. Here, here's the thing that I want you to hear. No, no matter how you walked into this room today, you can walk out of it with joy in your heart that only comes from God. Don't miss this moment. Don't miss the opportunity to grab hold of joy that God is offering freely. Let's pray together. God, you are good. You are mighty and strong, and we trust in you today. God, I pray that we would be able to grab hold of the joy that you offer to us so freely. God, I pray that you would help us to be joyful in the face of difficulty. God, that we would not fall into the trap of finding happiness in things that are never going to ultimately bring us joy. God, I pray that we would enjoy all of creation that you give us to enjoy, but that we would not let our focus stay there. God, that we would enjoy creation that you've given us to enjoy, but that we would keep our eyes on you. And that that would cause us to be joyful no matter what's going on around us. God, help us to trust in you all the more. To trust in your loving kindness. God, you are good. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand together. We will sing.